as we think about signs of the times and the, the, the last days in which we live, it is imperative for us to understand that as the, the coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ draws near, that life is going to get more challenging. I read an interesting article this week, and it referenced a lady on Twitter, and so I thought, I I need to take a look at at this. And so uh, this woman on social media, she describes herself as a young progressive woman, issued her doctrinal creed, and, and this is it. She wrote this, I am a Christian, and I believe proselytizing is violence. In other words, sharing the message of Jesus with others. It is violence. I'm a Christian, and I believe LGBTQ plus people are divine and should lead us. I am a Christian, and I don't go to church. I am a Christian, and I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. Now, notice what she says. She uh, rejects the message of evangelism and sharing Jesus with others. And not only does she reject it and say that we shouldn't do it, that it in, inflicts violence on others. She rejects the moral authority of, of scripture. She rejects the church. She, uh, still though wants to call herself a quote Christian. Very interesting as we look at the day in which we live. And as I, as I read that, I, I think, you know, What if I stood before you and said, I'm a meat-eating vegetarian? Or, I'm an atheist who believes in God. See, the picture is, is when you understand the truths of the faith and, and what this one espouses, they say, I'm a Christian, but I can make that to believe, uh, to, to be anything that I want to believe. I I like what someone wrote. To be clear, this kind of self-constructed, build-a-bear, buffet-style belief acquisition works fine for some worldviews, especially in the westernized, new-agey offsprings of Eastern pantheism. In other words, that God is in all and all is in God. Pantheistic, pan meaning all, and and God is in all and, and all is in God. As we think about Christianity, however... We look at a system of beliefs that focuses around a God who has revealed himself in the natural realm, in general creation, as the creator of all things, and in special revelation as the God of Scripture. So we see that in our day, people will continue to be very religious, but they will define themselves however they want in the process. Paul made it clear that in these last days, life is going to grow challenging for those who know the Lord. So take your Bibles this morning and turn me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to pick up in, in verse number uh, one. We'll read the first five verses and then we'll skip down and read uh, verses 14 through 16. He says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, 
brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Then slide down with me to verse number 14. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus." For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And with that, let's take a moment and pray. And Father, we do thank you for your word and the truth in it today. And we pray that you would speak, that you would move, that you would have your hand on us. And God, give us ears to hear and a heart that is open to your truth and builds our lives on the foundation of it. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of 2 Timothy is Paul's last epistle that is written. Paul is nearing his death, as he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, that the time of my departure is at hand. And so as Paul is penning his final words, these are very important words, because he warns believers that in these last days that they will be perilous or difficult times. As we think about that word perilous that is used, it gives the picture of difficult or grievous or uh, times that may be violent or fierce. It is a a word that is used in Matthew chapter 8 as it talks about the Gadarean demoniacs and as they came out, they were violent or fierce men. He says in these last days, you may experience difficult perilous, challenging, stress-inducing times. But he not only shows them that these last days will be times of difficulty, he gives them the picture and the hope that in the last days for believers, there will be times of great opportunity. So as we think about that, I want us to kind of build off of those two main thoughts of life in the last days and the experience of difficulty, and then to look at the opportunity that we have. Look again at verse number one, where he says that in these last days, and remember that these last days are the days between the first and the second coming of Jesus. And I don't know when Jesus is going to come again for the second time, but we do know that this is later than it has ever been. And we believe by looking at even culture in the world around us, that his coming could be, and I believe is very near. So as we think about that and take that into consideration, we think about these last days. And the last days will first be times of great difficulty for Christ followers. There will be times of great difficulty. These will be perilous times, difficult times, challenging times. And as he uses that word, that perilous, he's, he's not pointing a rosy picture. He gives the indication that as believers, we are going to face great difficulty as we move closer to the second coming of Jesus. 
Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 put it this way. He gives the picture that like a woman in labor and the birth pains get more intense the closer she gets to labor, the more difficult and the more persecution and challenge there is for believers is just like a birth pain that keeps coming and coming and soon Christ will come. Now, my wife is here on the front row, and she is a very kind woman and very seldom even raises her voice. But when she was in the hospital with our firstborn, Luke, and she was waiting for that epidural, and they were being slow with the epidural, she grabbed me by the collar and said, you find the person who's supposed to give me this epidural. So, man, I went looking, and I found him. All right. I was not coming back empty handed. Okay. She is now the spokeswoman for epidurals. So anyway, after four kids, uh, as, as, as you think of that, Jesus gives the indication that the more difficult and challenging it gets as we face our culture and the opposition of the world, that means the closer it is to the second coming of Jesus. So what is going to make these times so difficult? Well, let's look here together as we see in verse number two. These last days are going to be great days of difficulty because of the culture. Our culture is going to present challenges to believers, and these challenges are going to show up first in what the world loves. As we think about the challenges of what the world loves, we find this is part of the reason that culture is going to be so difficult. And notice what he says in verse number two, for men will be lovers of themselves. They're going to love themselves. The world loves. First off and foremost, they love themselves. Now, there is something about loving myself to an unhealthy degree that I put myself on a place above God so that as I exalt myself, I diminish the greatness of who our God is. I love what uh, Samuel Johnson, an 18th century uh, writer, said. He was a preacher in the 18th century. He said this, he that overvalues himself will undervalue others. And he that undervalues others will oppose them. Now, now listen very carefully here. We're seeing this every day in our culture. People who love themselves and only see things their way, and it's their opinion and their right, and they overvalue themselves. And so anyone else who disagrees with them is nothing but an idiot. But worse than being an idiot, you are now an enemy. So that I can't tolerate anyone who disagrees with me. I am to oppose them and hate them. Did you see on the news when Dianne Feinstein hugged Lindsey Graham after the uh, judicial nomination of Amy Coney Barrett uh, finished? And and then when they hugged each other after all of the interviews. And did you see what happened? People began to jump and say, what is she doing loving this person? How can she hug this guy? He is the enemy. We oppose him. So what it does is when I love myself so much, I think my opinion is right and only I am right. And so you are not only someone that I have a differing opinion with, but respect. No, 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 no. Your opinion doesn't matter. Only my opinion matters. And not only are you undervalued, but you are opposed. You are the enemy. That's where our culture is today. We used to have times when we could respect each other and show kindness and love to each other and disagree 
on religion or politics or whatever else you want to fill in the blank on. But now it is because of the exaltation of self that says, I have to be right, you have to be wrong, and you're the enemy. They love themselves. But not only do they love themselves, but it tells us in this passage that they love money. They love themselves and they love money. See, God has an order for us. And here's the order. We are to worship God. We are to love others and we are to use things. But the world's philosophy is I'm going to ignore God. I'm going to love things and I'm going to use others. I don't mind who I step on or who I hurt. It's all about me and it's all about accumulation. It's about doing what I want. I sit on my own throne. I make my own rules. I do what I want. I do what's best for me. And because I am exalted and I love myself so much, I can go after as much as I want. And if it hurts you along the way, too bad for you. Then he goes down a long list of all kinds of sins. We don't have the time to look for. But then he says that they will be lovers of pleasure, that they will find uh, their God of, of hedonism, of, of self-satisfaction. It's all about me, and it's all about me being happy, whether uh, it's, it's satisfaction through food or comfort or sexual satisfaction. And, and it could be that I feel satisfied and better about myself because I'm arrogant and boastful and proud that I feel like I can hurt you, and that makes me feel better about me. So that people actually get their pleasure out of hurting others because they feel like that that's some show of power in their life because they can hurt others. And then he says, and they do not love God. See, the four can't coexist. I mean, if you love self and you love money and you love pleasure, you can't be a person who says, I'm loving God. Remember the first commandment, Matthew 22, 37 and 38. He, he, in 39, he tells us, you know, what's the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind. And the second command is to like it, to, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so the challenge for us as believers is that we have to love God first. And we, even though people may be uh, opposed to where we are religiously, politically, on all kinds of different moral codes that they live by, we cannot consider them an enemy. They are still someone who is made in the image of God and the image of God in them should bring us to a place where we respect them and we pray for them, pray for our enemies and those who spitefully use us. And we love those folks just like we would love our neighbor. Sometimes that's a challenge. But what is it that sets us apart from the world? They don't love God. Matter of fact, it is not that they just don't say that they love God because like this girl who I quoted at the beginning, I mean, you can say you're a Christian and not love God. Or take your Bibles and look with me to Exodus chapter 20 because I want us to go back and look at the Ten Commandments just for a minute. As we think about the Ten Commandments, we really understand and recognize, and, and you guys know, that the first commandment is there should be no other gods before our God. Notice he starts at Exodus chapter 20, Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus. God spoke all these things, all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Exodus 20 and verse number 2. You shall have no other gods before me. 
God is to be first and foremost. This has to do with who we worship. We are not to worship idols. But then notice the second commandment beginning in verse number four. You shall not make for yourselves a, or for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. And I have this part underlined in my Bible of those who hate me. Now, notice this carefully. The first commandment says no idols, no idols, nothing. The second commandment is not dealing with idols. He's already dealt with that in the first commandment. When he tells them not to make a false image, he's saying don't make misrepresentations of the one true God. There is a vast difference, a vast difference. The first one says don't make idols. The second one says, look, you are not to take the true one almighty God and, and try to represent him as something uh, on the, as the sun in the sky or something beneath the water on the earth. No, you are never to misrepresent the one true God. He is who he has revealed himself in scripture. And yet, why do people then say, you know, I just believe that God's just a doting grandfather who just winks at sin and just, you know, doesn't think it's a big deal. When the scripture reminds us our God is a consuming fire. Why is it that people look and say, you know, we just believe in a God who gives us warm fuzzies, who makes us feel good. When God says, I am a just and holy and righteous God. Do you know why they make God to be a doting grandfather? Do you, why, do you know why they make God to be a God who winks at sin and who's an eternal milk toast? Do you know why they make God that way? Because they hate the God who is revealed in Scripture. That's a hard one to swallow. That's a, that's a hard one to take in. But instead of looking to what the special revelation of Scripture shows us of who God is, they instead just say, well, I just feel like God's this way, and I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but I won't take the whole counsel of God. The challenges of our world are going to come because of what the world loves. But not only do we see back in 2 Timothy chapter 3 the challenge of what the world loves, but we see the challenge of what the world worships, which moves us right into that that thought as people make God in their own uh, own image and and make him out to be something that he is not. Notice verse number 5. They have a form of godliness, but deny its power. They have a shadow of religion. They have a silhouette that, that they can say, I go to this church but they deny the power and the personality of a God who can transform and change a life. See, as you look at this stool and the lights coming from this direction, they cast a shadow. The shadow is not the stool. It's just the shadow. And he says that they have this shadowy picture of religion 
And they may go to church. They may not go to church. They may be sincere about their own belief. They have a form of godliness. He gives the picture. Listen, Jesus gives the picture that, or, or, or Paul gives the picture. Religion is not going to die. People are going to stay religious, but they're just going to deny the one true God. They're going to remain religious. What the world worships. But then we dig into verse number six, and then we see how the world deceives. Notice with me in verse number six, as, as he begins to share, for of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins and led them away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. They're men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the truth. What's he saying? He's saying that these folks who have this shadowy picture of, oh, yes, yeah, sometimes I go to church. Oh, I believe that God, I, I believe my God's just a God of loving who accept, a love who accepts everybody. And, and no one has to change it. And no one has to repent of sin. No one has to confess sin. And everybody's okay. And everybody just shows up in heaven. And he says, these folks, they creep into, and, and he gives the picture of the houses of gullible women. And some of it, you, you, it may say weak. The picture is, is that these women are weak in their faith. They're weak in understanding who God is. And so they creep in and, and women often are more sensitive, especially to moral uh, sins and issues than men. And so they may feel guilty about the things that they've done wrong in their life. And these folks creep in and they lead them away from the truth. He says they're, they're like Janus and Jambres. Now, Janus and Jambres' names are not used uh elsewhere to give us real context of who they are. But Jewish history tells us that Janus and Jambres were two of the magicians from Exodus chapter 7. Do you remember the story where Moses has the, the rod and he casts it down? And remember, the Egyptian pharaoh calls his guys and they're able to cast their rods down and they become snakes too. Do you remember the story, Exodus chapter 7? And you remember what happens? Moses' snake eats their snake, you know, I mean, cool. But he's saying, look, there's power in the work of darkness. And there's an evil one who has real power and can really deceive people. And just like Janus and Jambres, they could, they could fake a miracle and they could show uh, the Pharaoh and deceive others. There are people like that in our world. How the world deceives. And then notice, we see how the world behaves. Notice with me down in, in verse number 10, Paul says, you know, you've carefully followed my doctrine and my manner of life. But then notice in verse number 11, he mentions persecutions. And then notice in verse number 12, he mentions, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Listen, for us as believers, persecution is probably not going to come in the United States in the next few years as people rise up violently and try to kill us. I, I don't foresee that happening. I, I don't see a, a, a rising group of people who are going to come and try to, to kill people in church. Now, those things do happen, and that's, that's really real. I mean, uh, we have had incidences of, of folks coming into churches with guns and all that kind of, and, and people killing people because, but I think that it's, it's much more subtle than, than that. The persecution is going to come just as one accused one of evangelism or proselytizing as violence. 
The persecution is going to come when they say, you're sharing Jesus is hate speech. You talking about the Lord to me and I'm offended. You must be a bigot. You're close-minded. You're, you're immoral and filled with a, a venomous hate because you believe that Jesus is the only way. You stand for morals. You have maybe read the papers over the last few weeks. A teacher in one of the Zumwalt school districts, and I don't know the teacher. I uh, don't know who it is. Never talked to him. Never met him. He, he tweeted on his own personal t- Twitter, never should have allowed gay marriage to start with. Marriage is between a man and woman, plain and simple. Now understand that this was the law of the land in the United States of America up until 2015 with Obergefell versus Hodges. That changed. Okay, So we go back 4,000 plus years and we find that marriage has always been defined as between a man and a woman. And and I'm not saying that he did the smartest thing when, when he did this, or I'm not saying he didn't do a smart thing. I'm just saying he just put this out on his own personal Twitter. Then, notice what happens. People begin to show up at the Board of Education uh, and and begin to, to fight him staying. If you find your coach doesn't think you should be allowed to get married or have the same rights as you, that sends a really bad message, not only to you, but to the rest of the team. And then someone wrote this. Now, listen. I would like to see him fired. I don't think that those kinds of opinions and those kinds of views, listen, have any place in education. The view that marriage is between a man and a woman doesn't have any place in education when, or when you're a coach. Now, now listen to that. That's where we're going to fight the battles. These are where the battles are coming. Okay, so you as a believer need to be grounded. You as a believer need to stand. You need to understand what the truth is. See, when we look at the world loving themselves and loving money and loving pleasure, that may carry them through for a while, but it is never going to satisfy their soul. And so because of that, when we think of the challenges to believers, we find that because we have the only truth, we have the only hope. So, as we think about the, the thought of the last days being uh, times of great difficulty for Christ followers, we also look at the other side of that and think, these last days are going to be times of great opportunity for Christ followers. And then notice what we see back in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Notice how how this picks out on that that second second thought. As, As we get this picture, the last days are going to be times of great, great opportunity. Notice with me, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in, in verse number uh, 10, we just looked at it. He says, you've carefully followed my doctrine and manner of life and my purpose and my faith and my long-suffering and my love and my perseverance, my persecutions, my afflictions, which happened to be at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And then notice what it says, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. The last days will be times of great opportunity because our God is able. That's the picture. Paul says, look, I faced affliction. I faced persecution. Paul didn't go into town thinking, man, I'm going to be next month's 
Rotary Person of the Month, he went in thinking, I'm probably going to end up in jail here somewhere, and I'm going to be persecuted. But he says, man, I've been persecuted. I've been beaten. I've been whipped. I've been given stripes, 39 uh, stripes many times. I've been left for dead. I've been shipwrecked and faced all kinds of things. But our God is able. And that's what we uh, lean on. And that's what we stand on, that our God is able. There is not a challenge or a test or a trial that will come into your life that comes as a surprise to God. And God's grace will be sufficient no matter what challenge you face, when you face it, how you are outnumbered, how you are outmanned, how you are outgunned, how you are outfinanced. God is on your side. And that's what we lean on. That's what we rest on. Can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar as he calls everyone to bow and those three would not bow and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into a a fiery furnace and he peers in and he says there's four there and he looks like one who is the son of God or son of man. The picture is, is God will not leave us as we face persecution. Our God is able. And if God's for us, who can be against us? That's the picture. That's the hope. That's the calling of our life. We have a God who is able. Secondly, we not only have a God who is able, we have salvation which is available. He says in verse number 15, and that from childhood, Timothy, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. What did he say? Timothy, you know... I watched you as a little boy and your mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, and they taught you the things of the faith and you have come to know Jesus. From childhood, you've you've been able to hear the message of salvation and you've received salvation. Can I tell you? The same Lord who saved in 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 AD still saves in 2020. Salvation is available. The Bible tells us that Christ died for our sins. And he was buried and he rose again the third day for our sins according to the scriptures. And it is through the scriptures that when we come to a moment and recognize that the wages of sin is death, that what I earn and deserve because of my sin is separation from God forever. But the gift of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding that gift of who he is and how he died for me can bring me eternal life, forgiveness. And though my sin, Isaiah 118 says, that though my sins be as scarlet, that they can be as white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they can be as wool. I can have a brand new start. I can experience genuine forgiveness. I can be a new creation in Christ. Salvation is available. That's the hope we have. And listen, we have something that self and money and pleasure can never bring. And that is peace with the almighty, eternal God. Only we have that. That message needs to be shared. The truth is, is that if there's anyone, anyone 
who would call on the name of the Lord, they can be saved. Salvation is available. It's available today. And then thirdly, I want to tell you that our Bible is reliable. What do we have? We have the word of God that has faced the testings of time. Matthew 24, 35 says that heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. In 1 Peter 1, 23, it tells us that the grass can fade and the, or the grass can wither and the flower can fade, but the word of the Lord is going to endure forever. So what is special that brings a sense of reliability about this word? Notice what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Our Bible is reliable. We think about the inspiration of Scripture. The word here that is used is the word in the Greek, theopneustos. It means God breathe. So that in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 20, it says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The word moved means that they were carried along, that they were born along, that God carried the very men who composed the word of God and gave them the exact uh, wording that when they finished, it was exactly how God wanted to say it. So that we find that people wrote from different backgrounds and they wrote from, from uh, even different continents and in different languages, but we find that there is an amazing unity. The inspiration of Scripture, our Bible is reliable. Then we see the confirmation of Scripture in this sense of unity. The confirmation means that we look and we think, man, we have over 40 writers of the Bible over a 1,600-year period from three different continents in three different languages, wrote 66 books that perfectly compile and unite into one complete revelation of God. There is one theme, and that is the theme of redemption, that men was separated from God, and God provided a way to bring man back to God. There is one hero of the Scripture. He is prophesied about in the Old Testament. He is revealed in the New Testament. His name is Jesus. There is one villain in the Scripture. He is Satan. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the deceiver and the father of lies. And there is one purpose of the Scripture, and it is all to the glory of God. We find amazing sense of unity in this book, that over 1,600 years and 40 writers and three continents and three languages, and yet they all line up to point us to God's plan of redemption. There's the unity of Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And as we look at that Scripture, we can look and say, wow, God has shown himself strong. Not only do we see unity, but we see the history Nelson Gluck is an authority on Israeli archaeology. And understand, archaeology cannot prove the Bible. But what it does 
do is it gives evidence of certain things happening in certain places that, that show us that what the scripture had to say was true. Now, Nelson Gluck is an authority on Israel archaeology, and he said this, no archaeological discovery has controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. So we find as we look back and as they dig back, they find, wow, this happened just like it. we're digging up things that the Bible told us. Then we see the prophecy of Scripture. As we think about prophecy, there's over 300 prophecies concerning the person of Jesus himself in the Old Testament. Now, one mathematician has figured that if only... And remember, the Old Testament Scripture stopped about 400 B.C. with the writings of Malachi. Someone, a mathematician, has, has come to the point and said, if only eight of the references to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, came to pass, which many more than eight did, He said it would be the chances of one times 10 to the 17th power. That's a lot of zeros, my friend. So if you took the state of Texas and you stacked it up with quarters about knee high and you marked one quarter, what's the chance of you finding it? That's the chance of it being a coincidence that these prophecies of Scripture would come to pass. So we see this picture of Scripture and prophecy. Then we think about the reliability of Scripture. Did you know that we have over 10,000, over 10,000 manuscripts, uh, over 5,700 Greek manuscripts? As, as we think about the reliability, reliability of Scripture, with 10,000 Greek manuscripts and 10,000 Old Testament manuscripts and 5,700 Greek manuscripts, there is no comparison to any book in all of history on the numbers of, of fragments and, and uh, complete books that we have. And you know what we find? We find occasionally... As a scribe was writing, there may be a textual variant that just like you would maybe as you would uh, begin typing and you would write the, and then you'd stop for a second and then you'd come back and write the word the again and the beginning, and you may have it twice. There's a couple of textual variants in it. They may have got a letter backward or forward, but but no, no uh, nothing that would change anything. It's just a manuscript writer. But what we find is, is, about with 99% accuracy as they have found these 10,000 Old Testament manuscripts and these 5,700 Greek manuscripts, that they are identical, reliable. This is amazing. The confirmation of Scripture. But then we look at our lives. And I don't know about you, but when it comes to the Bible... This book has changed my life. I was one of these boys like Timothy, that from childhood I knew the holy scriptures which were able to make me wise into salvation. Some of you were teenagers. Some of you were young adults. Some of you were adults. When you finally came to understand, Jesus saves. And as I get into his word, my life is changed. God does a work. And I don't know about you, but as I sat in my, 
uh, getting ready for my CT scan on uh, Friday at the hospital. And I pulled out my phone, and it was the 23rd. And so I have a little app called The Five Psalms, and it clicked, I clicked it, and it went to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I will tell you, that waiting room became a worship room where I was able to thank God that I wasn't by myself, but that he was with me. My life was transformed. No fear, no anxiety. God, you're with me. You make me to lie down in green pastures. You lead me beside the still waters. You restore my soul. God, you bring calm. The transformation of Scripture. Has your life been changed by Jesus? Is your life being changed by the power of the Word? One of the ways that people can see Jesus is real, salvation is genuine, is when a believer says, I'm not going to walk in darkness, I'm going to walk in light. I'm not going to hate people. I'm going to love people. I'm not going to live immorally. I'm going to live a holy, sanctified life. I'm not going to talk like everybody else. I'm not going to act like everybody else. I'm not going to be arrogant about it, but I'm just going to be different. And the light of Jesus and the love of Jesus is going to shine through me. That's our opportunity in a world filled with hate and anger over politics and religion. To walk his light, to show his love, shows the transformation that Jesus brings and gives us the opportunity for ministry in the last days. Will you take advantage of it? Will you take advantage of it? With that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I I thank you for the truth of your word and the power in it. God, may we be men and women, students of truth that show love and kindness that shine as a light in a dark world. Father, we recognize as the world gets darker that the light that we have, the opportunity to shine, can shine even brighter. So Lord, I pray for strength and courage that we would rise up, show the world Our God is able, salvation is available, and the truth of the gospel can transform us forever. In your name I pray, amen.